1: That's BlueNile.com.
0: The year is 1980. Sydney's streets are filthy, running rampant with crime and corruption. Puberty blues is onto the cinemas. Ice House is blaring on the stereo. It's humid and dangerous. And a young man has decided to join the police force to fight crime. That man, of course, is my dad. Loose Units, the podcast, was created to tell the cases that wouldn't fit into my first book, Loose Units. But Loose Units was a series of fantastical tales that I wrote Based on the real crimes my dad solved on the force back in the early 80s So this season, Dad and I are finally going to go back, back, back to the year 1980 And each week, we'll be going chapter by chapter through Loose Units, the book And Dad will tell us the story behind my version of events It'll be thrilling, revelatory, and as always, very, very loose Welcome to Loose Units Origins Hello, and welcome to Loose Units Origins. Every week, I sit down with my dad, John Verhoven, and I get him to tell me the stories behind the stories in my book, Loose Units, which I wrote about dad. There's a lot going on there, a lot to unpack, but every week we've been going through a chapter from the book, and dad's been explaining, you know, his side of events. Dad, this week we are hitting, I would say one of my favorite chapters because it's based on one of the... Would you say that Len is one of the most interesting characters in the Loose Units pantheon?
2: Paul, it's funny that you s- that you say interesting characters because the reality, of course, is that, yes, what you've done with his character uh-huh. is created a magnificent and very interesting story around him. Yeah. But it's as though the characters are the interesting people because he, when he was born, yeah. um, you know how they generally get rid of the the placenta? You know, although some people do put them in fridges, don't they, and keep the them?
0: Face, the face I'm pulling right now. Yeah, okay, go on. Yeah.
2: Mm. Well, but generally they, they, they throw it away, but inadvertently with Mr... Oh, shit, I almost used his real name. have got to be really careful because it's, I'm, I'm getting PTSD. Well, we're dealing of, with... It, just thinking about his face. These are real people. I mean, you know... No, one no, of no, sh- he's real. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the thing is, Paul, I think they accidentally also threw out his personality.
0: Okay, you don't think maybe his mother cooked the personality up and ate it?
2: He had, on a scale of 1 to 10, he didn't even get a 1. Okay, so he's in the negatives. He he had no personality and I felt kind of... (laughs) I really drew the short straw.
0: You did, and we're going to get to the actual Mm. process of getting a mentor. Okay. But I don't want to bury the lead here. This chapter no. is called, "Chapter." it's chapter five, Len Beater. And obviously, one of the things that you were looking forward to when you joined the police force was being paired up with a really cool mentor. And mm. you did get the short straw, quite literally. But first, the chapter opens with this. And that was it. John was out of his first installment of classroom time at the academy and was off to nine months of placement in an actual station as a functioning cop. On his last day, though, he was sitting next to the Oval at the Academy after class with a handful of classmates. A young woman in shorts and a t-shirt doing laps. Laps? Doing Laps? I would edit that out, but I couldn't be bothered. Let's start that sentence again. you're, A young woman in shorts and a t-shirt doing laps passed by, trying to pretend there weren't people staring at her. John watched without paying close attention, then got up to leave. It wasn't until he got home later that night that he grasped exactly who she was, the girl from the newspaper ad. Before he knew it, or before he had time to ruminate any further about the girl, John was stationed at North Sydney. And at that point, I write about you basically being stuck in the switchboard room. Now, you've talked about this before, but this is where I would argue one of the most iconic first meetings between you and the woman who en- ends up becoming my mum. spoiler alert, Christine Verhoven. You had sort of a really bizarre flirtation with her in the switchboard room, but could you describe these switches? Because the way you described it and the way I kind of painted it in the book was that you were effectively operating Cold War machinery. What were these switchboards looking like and how do they operate?
2: Well, it was called a Sylvester switchboard. Mm-hmm. Um, and you are very sweet, Paul, saying the switchboard room, we didn't have a, a designated room for the switchboard. That was in the main office so when people came into the station from the street yeah with a myriad of you know dilemmas queries complaints and also that's where prisoners were generally brought in yeah through the front main station there was a counter with a with a flip lid directly behind that against this 150 year old sort of almost convict built sandstone wall is where the station constable, and on that particular night it was me, sat there with this abomination of a switchboard. Now, for those people that don't know what a Sylvester switchboard is, um, please Google it, just go to Images, and it'll, you'll, you'll, it will all will be revealed. And it was a, a really scary and antiquated. It should have been in a museum. In fact, North Sydney Police Station could well be a living museum. That's how old it was.
0: Well, it's still there, and it's a very, very old, very beautiful building. I mean, I wonder how many listeners have either gone there specifically to kind of, you know, pay, go to the site or some of their favorites. Yeah, pay, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you know, there should be one of those, you know, when you go to England and there's those little blue circles, those plaques yes. outside the house yeah. of, you know, Charles Dickens was born here. Mm. We should get a blue, a blue Paul, I've said to
2: you many, many times before. That I'm an ideas
0: man, yes, but not all ideas
2: are good ideas, yes. Paul, I've said to you many times <laughs> that you are an ideas person uh, and I'll pay that one. It's actually a good oh. idea. All right,
0: great. Well, you know, I, I wonder what it would say. Would it say on this site from years 1980 to 1980, what, five, six, uh, John Verhoeven, hero of bestseller, loose units, uh, fought crime and, and it's all One. I don't know. Paul,
2: it's not that big a plaque. We make it
0: very big. We'd, you know, it'd be some sort of oblong or something. We can make mm. it huge.
2: Are, yeah. If I may digress just very slightly, there is a oh. permanent plaque mm-hmm. at uh, Crow's Fire Station yep. with my name on it. Are you serious? Yeah, for that. And another firefighter, Tim Kerrigan, he and I. But that's- wait, that was, wait, that was Tim Kerrigan? Yeah.
0: I faintly remember Tim Kerrigan, faintly. Yeah.
2: He and I, we were. we've yeah. been immortalised.
0: Right. Is it like a bronze bust of you? Ball.
2: Yeah. it's not, it's not, it's it's a nice plaque. Hopefully. You're right,
0: a bronze bust wouldn't be cool at all. Come on, if people saw a bronze bust of you, maybe we could get, you know, that stupid talking dog out the front of the QVB that John Law, woof, woof, hi, I'm a dog. You know that dog that speaks and it's John Law's voice? Maybe. No, I don't know it. Oh, it's terrible. Maybe we could have a statue of you and every time someone walks past... Uh, hi, I'm John Verhoven. Uh, and then you have a little well you can throw money into and it goes to charity. I like or that something.
2: idea. Yeah, great. I like the first half of that idea.
0: Do we know any sculptors, and do we know any technicians who could put speakers inside the sculpture? And then we could sort of just... I'm sure if you just put it up, people would assume it belonged in a public place. Well, whatever
2: medication you're taking, can I have some, please? Yeah, it's called Maxalt and it's really kicking in. So...
0: Uh, we were talking about the Sylvester, the Sylvester switchboard, which I mm. described as Cold War machinery. But yeah. it, it, is, how does it actually work? I mean, wh- okay. what is a switchboard?
2: All right, well, you've got a tiny little, uh, like a dial with yeah. numbers on it. Yeah. Um, I have to close my eyes and actually think about it. it. It was, I mean, for the listeners, please, please have a look at it. And you've got all these um, things that are, God, it's so bizarre. When I first saw it, I actually felt sick. I thought I'd gone into the wrong building, and I thought I was I'd gone into the wrong century. Mm-hmm. I couldn't believe that they'd have something like this. And if a call came in from the public, um it'd be a certain there were a certain number of lines that could come in from the public, and then you'd you'd chat with them and then they'd say we'd like to speak to such and such. So you'd pull this weird long cable out and you'd insert it into a hole. Now, that hole you put it into, and then you'd, once you'd sort of shoved it in this hole, um, you'd then pull this lever towards you, and it would buzz that person in that station, or it could have been up in the detective's office, and then something would happen, and then you'd kind of forget about it. But sometimes I'd get so stressed out, I had so many, it was like a game of Twister, But sometimes all the cords became sort of entangled and this detective once saw how incredibly stressed I was and he came in and he put his arm right through every single cable and pulled them all out simultaneously and they all sprung back. like. The best analogy I can give is like a sea creature that pokes its little head out but then as you swim toward it, it then sucks its whole body back into a hole in the bottom of the ocean and what he'd effectively done for me was he'd disconnected every single person and I'm talking some really serious calls were going down but he, and I acknowledged his help in that what he'd done is that he'd enabled me to start all over again. That's how bad it was and it was so archaic. It was actually, you see them in uh, black and white movies from the 1920s. Yeah, yeah. That's the technology we had at North Sydney Police Station, and it was a joke. That's it's really cr- just bizarre.
0: So I assume that when Mum came in, because I tell the story of how, you know, you and you and Mum had a, you, you know, she wasn't Mum at this point, obviously, but you and Mum had a bit of a flirt in the. I almost said I said dispatch room again. I almost said dispatch room again. Was just, a, I she, built this. Yeah, you know, Look, I've, I've, yeah, yeah um,
2: it was like the it's the it's the station. Whenever members of the public come into a police station, that's kind of... Imagine there are police officers on the other side of the counter mm-hmm. and you're a member of the public. So you're looking into the station, you're talking, they're talking back to you, but behind people at the, the counter was the switchboard. So I'm sitting there delirious mm. uh, because it was really late at night and Christine, who was working, playing clothes, she was wearing... Um, long pants and she came into the station. She had never noticed me, ever. I was just a, another wacky constable. Um, wacky constable? <laughs> please don't. Can you edit that out? No, I'm going to call the episode The Wacky Constable. <laughs> oh, for fuck's sake, Paul. <laughs> okay, that's... All right. So, um, and, and I was really, really skinny. And wacky. And... I remember if you were doing if you were the station constable, it was actually I look I tried to make the best of every job, but it was a bit tough because you're listening to the police radio, and you can hear the action, the excitement, urgent jobs, police officers running in and out of the station, bringing prisoners in, and I'm sitting there kind of one of the station constables' job. Well, I had to answer the every phone call that came in. Yeah, I had to get the prisoners' meals from the greasy spoon. I had to fingerprint every prisoner. I had to photograph every prisoner. I had to assist the station sergeant who was... That was a really very, very important job in that he's the actual guy that would charge. Like, the police had come in and charge, but he had to decide the nature of the charge. It was actually up to... He was generally a, a guy back then. He would actually decide if that charge was suitable. So detectives could come in with a prisoner and say, we want this um, offender to be charged with a certain offence, and the mm-hmm. station sergeant, their knowledge of the law, of the Crimes Act, was encyclopedic, at least you hoped it was, because they could knock back a charge. They could effectively say to you, I'm not accepting, accepting this charge, and you were up shit creek without a paddle. And so it was, you know, and you had to sort of, you know, get along with them. But another one of my roles or the station constables roles was to search prisoners. So, you you know, in the movies when they pat you down mm. and you're, you're up against a wall with your arms up high and you literally, and you, and boy, boy oh, boy, you patted them down properly. And uh, so there were a myriad of tasks and then you had people coming to the station. Look, it was just, it was intense. And then Christine just sort of swans in and, You know, she just had her back to me and that's um, where I saw her. She took one of her her shoes off, didn't she? One or uh... two. She slipped her shoes off, Mm. which I thought was a bit, you know, sort of... Well, that was the high point of that night. And I watched her rub her... How how much of this do you want me to say, Paul? I don't know, but it
0: turns out the wacky constable has a foot fetish.
2: Now, definitely edit that out. (laughs) (laughs) Fuck. Paul... Anyway, so, and then she proceeded to basically ignore me, which I was used to. Sure. Yeah. Um, yeah so that was kind of that was my first. I had seen her at the academy, mm-hmm. uh, running did around. You, did you think she, you were a bit of a heel? Um, she again didn't notice me. Did you? And, were you
0: not towing? Were you not towing the line? And well, then, I know you. You obviously thought you were a bit of a shoe in. Um,
2: and then, of course, the. The first time I saw her was a photograph of her,, Yeah, in the paper, prior to joining the New South Wales police force. Yeah. And um,
0: thanks for breezing by my puns, by the way, I really appreciate that.
2: Oh, no, I just I love your puns.
0: You just, you're just not appreciatively you're a, you're, a punster. I've done, you're a punster. I've done shows. Speaking of punster, uh, Len Beder apparently looks like a monster, so let's get onto that. Just just parenthetically, everybody. I've done festival shows at comedy festival, and I've had Dad in the audience grinning from ear to ear, completely silent. Just,
2: just Paul. I love your humor.
0: I'm not saying you don't. I'm just really saying do. that you, your your appreciation does is. Mm. It's very hard to get you to vocalize on the mic, which is mm. totally fine. It's just no, no. no
2: I think I'm speaking volumes by my silence, and I like to also not interfere. And, and I love listening to you. I don't um, want
0: to interrupt your jokes with distracting laughter. Here we go, and this is pretty on point. All right. But this isn't the story of how John met Christine. This is the story of how John met Len Beter. And please, Dad, let me know if this description is fair. Len had a bad haircut on a good day. He was a fussy man, Lilliputian in stature, brows always furrowed with stress. His entire life, both past and present, was about traffic. He was ex-highway patrol and he was a real stickler for details, although evidently the details of his unique aesthetic evidently didn't work. Wa- Oh, I put evidently. Tw- oh, this is um, guys. I'm reading the uh, uncorrected advance proof, which is about three edits shy of being finished. It's the one they send to critics to kind of read the book before it's done. So sometimes I'm reading typos and having a small heart attack that it went to print. Long story short, Dad, uh, when you were given your mentor, I know that I know that you kind of buck against this notion that you were looking for a mentor, but I, I think I think that's an important arc mm. for the story. Um, mm. Can you describe? The mentors that some of the other people got buddied up with in, in comparison to your own?
2: I can. Um, some of the mentors, uh, the buddies... Yeah. ...were, um, well, you know, they were amazing. One of the buddies um, that you mentioned later on in the book, um, he wore a bulletproof vest. And in his holidays, he used to go to Los Angeles... And ride in the patrol cars as a uniformed police officer in America. Um, there was another police officer that I worked at, or who worked at the station. That um, he was a buddy to someone else in my class, and he was one of the first police officers in New South Wales to get a low slung holster, uh, like Clint Eastwood. He was an amazing police officer, and there were some really, there were some great. Um, great buddies, buddies that I came later on in my career to to really realize they were phenomenal police officers. And now you've described um, my first buddy uh, as Lilliputian. Can you, can you just sort of expand on what you mean by that?
0: Yeah, the, um, Lilliputians are the tiny people from Gulliver's Travels.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: I was trying to say he so was small.
2: I think you may have said that, Paul, to help me steer away from actually saying who it was because this guy... And and listeners, you may notice that I'm pausing a lot. Every time I mention this person, I cannot possibly slip and mention his name for lots of reasons because Paul, as you know and I know, later on in other stories, some bad shit happens.
0: Yeah, and it's tricky. One one of the things that Penguin Legal and I had to do was just... Change names, change places. I mm. mean, at one point we were so we were being so careful that mm. we actually um, that Penguin agreed to let me invent a police station. Mm. We were going to
2: remember we were going we to yeah. situate
0: the whole thing at a fictional St. Leonard's police station. Yeah.
2: Look, my heart's racing a little bit, everyone, because I met up with um, a person um, some months ago mm-hmm. um, that is still in the New South Wales police force and this particular person uh, told me some stories about who we're talking about now, and the stories were really bad. So again, I really like to cover my ass here. Um, But he wasn't, in fact, Lilliputian, but he was one of the rare human beings that's ever been born on this planet that actually had no shape
1: to his body. (laughs)
2: yeah, look, if you put the person and walk around them, they look the same from every position.
0: Right, so he's like, if, if he was a Pokemon, he'd be Ditto. I mean, he sounds he like just, a marshmallow. He had no,
2: he had no neck. Right. Okay. No shoulders. Sure. No. I, he, he did have a bulging waist. Um, and um, he was everything in the police force that, even from that early period, in the New South Wales Police Force, I imagine that, you know in a foot pursuit uh, this particular person would have been incapable um, and i and i used to think it was a shame that they'd let the the ball drop in terms of you know at least police being able to at least look you know as though they look after themselves
0: he's saying he was ball shaped because that would actually allow him to Any time a suspect went downhill he'd be he'd be perfect
2: he could he could curl up in a ball and roll down and basically like a bowling ball knock them over like a skittle
0: who's that guy in in hook is the big guy in hook? That kid can kind of roll up and... It doesn't matter. I don't know.
2: But Paul, in terms of his haircut, yeah. I was thinking about that this morning mm. as I read the, the the chapter, chapter five. And I'm trying to think of someone that we all know. Imagine if you get out of the shower yeah. and you just comb... If, you, if you're a guy and you just comb your hair straight down over your eyebrows uh, and then you let it set. And then you kind of get egg white, and you kind of rub the egg. You crack the egg over your head, but yep. you make sure you separate the yolk from the white. So mm-hmm. you just use the white, like as though you're doing a pavlova. Mm-hmm. And then you walk out in the sun. Yeah. And it becomes really, really hard, crisp, and shiny. Oh, God, it's come to me. Guess who he looked like, everyone? Who? Norman Gunston. Holy That's the shit. Okay. Wow. Except okay. Norman Gunston was really good looking. Comparatively, comparatively speaking. Right? Comparatively speaking. Yeah, yeah. And I think he actually had to get two belts and sew them together to make one belt because he was very wide. That's he- funny.
0: You, yeah, I think I we did. We you, you talked me through his physical attributes and his mm. appearance. And it was important that a bad haircut was one of the signifiers. But other than that... I basically created an entirely new person you physically did. so that you did. so that it so that no one at any point could point to that and go oh, I know no, that.
2: No no but look that's great Paul but you know imagine if um, you're in a classroom situation and you have so there were quite a few of us that had been stationed there were 10 of us um, from class 171 and um, you know it, it it was an exciting day it would have been a monday morning we were all doing day shift and we were presented with our respective buddies and it was a little bit like and i again i i'm loath to use the analogy but i actually love analogies it was a little bit like and, and with the greatest respect to this particular actor i'm going to mention and i'm doing it with the best of intentions but can you imagine having nine arnold schwarzeneggers yep. and one danny devito i got I'm danny in- devito
0: there is nothing wrong with Danny DeVito.
2: No, I love him. I might pick no, Danny. Cause he,
0: no, because, Dad, it's the basic rule of economics. You know, the less of something there is, the more valuable it is. Look, Ten like- Arnies diminishes the value of Arnies. No, but I'm,
2: one- I know, but in the police force, you know, you're really, you are thinking about high-speed chases, football of course. shoots. Yeah. You know, you're, you're talking about getting into a violent brawl of which there were numerous at pubs. There were pub brawls every weekend. It was on for young and old. You'd pull people over in cars, and and it was on. It was it was unbelievable. It was frontier land, and it was bloody exciting. And you wanted a police officer, a colleague that could back you up when the shit hit the fan. Okay, if you're getting the shit kicked out of you, you want. I mean, honestly, I mean that's what want, I was. Y- yeah, you, I mean,
0: you want you want Arnie. You don't want Danny DeVito throwing a
2: rum Look, hand. I'm not at saying something. that Danny can't. You know, look after yourself, Danny, Danny. what the fuck is it? Anyway, we're it's on first Danny. name terms. But, yeah, Paul, she'll... I think I'm I'm moving a little bit down the hole at this stage. No, no, but- no.
0: You, Dad, Dad, you're doing really well because what you said, if you, if you get into a bit of a shit situation, you want someone who's got your back. And what mm. happens at the tail end of uh, Chapter 5 is a literal cliffhanger. I wrote my first cliffhanger and it is a car chase. Now, this is a story involving yourself... Mm. and uh, yourself and Len Beater and mm. Dunn. Mm. Now, Dunn's one of my favorite characters in the book. I think mm. everyone really likes Dunn. Yeah. I know that we're going to talk about Dunn a little more um, down the road because obviously mm. uh, Dunn became a little more nuanced, mm. but the point is that you were in the back of a patrol car doing a, you know, just a driving run. around.
2: We, a We, run. we, we actually ra- ran, we had a run um, about one in the morning we yeah, used to go yeah. to uh, where they used to print the papers, mm-hmm. the Daily Telegraph, the Sunday Mirror, the Sun, etc. And that was in Kippak Street, Surrey Hills, and police cars from all over Sydney. And I used to hate it. It was so... Look, I hated going out of area. I always, th- I always had a problem with that because I thought, hang on a sec. Um, and you'd all- everyone would be sneaking out of area. And that was just one of the things, you know, the senior officers wanted their their newspapers. And as you so beautifully and succinctly said in in Chapter 5, that when we picked the papers up, they were warm. And they were warm. They had just come off the presses. And we'd sort of go in there and it was, I thought it was a little bit embarrassing being given free newspapers. And you'd see police cars lined up. And it was just, for me, it wasn't police work. Um... You know, I already had a bit of a compass in terms of how I wanted to, how I saw myself eventually becoming, you know, a good um, mentor myself yep. um, because I, I I was of the, of the uh, opinion that you should be out there doing police work. And to go into the city and come back, that was at least half an hour out of your shift and you only had an eight-hour shift. And for me, it was all about, you know, the action, the excitement. One thing I will say to you, all is that you described it as a kind of a, a bespoke news agency. What it re, The reality is that it was actually the printing press and there was a back dock with hundreds of uh, trucks and they would take newspapers all over New South Wales so they'd take them right up to the Queensland border um, down to the Victorian border and they would be doing that. So it was frenetic and you'd get in there, they'd reluctantly, these guys would look at you and, know, oh, you know, more freebies for the police force. And... Uh, and then, so basically, you'd get them hot off the press. You'd put them in the back of the car, which is where I was sitting, and Mister um, uh, Mister Dunn. You almost was, said it. Didn't you? I almost said it. Was the driver uh, and my buddy? Now I'd been in the police force for maybe a week in general duties. Yeah, like we're talking my first night shift, and it was a it was a warm summer. Sydney night, it was really quiet, bearing in mind, listeners, it's 1981. Things were a lot different back then.
0: Was and the l- stuff that happens to your brain when, you're, when you are sleep deprived, you feel... Yeah. If you've ever done shift work, you know that feeling. You know what it's like and you're... I mean, it was the adrenaline cutting through that or were you just bored by this I point? was
2: just, you know... Look, I was excited but I was mm. bored um, because I wanted action. I wanted... I was craving you'd heard all these amazing stories from our instructors at the academy. And then, Mm. you know, it's like, it's like, imagine if you have been told what war's like and then you go somewhere and you're in intelligence working 100 kilometers from the front line in a tent. Mm. And they bring, and it's just, it's not the war. God help anyone that actually craves. But when the Anzacs went to Gallipoli I'm sure you know there were young guys 14 15 year olds that there were whole towns in Australia that just lost all their guys and they were heading off into adventure you know and that that excitement in Egypt and seeing the pyramids and the sphinx and and then going over and but some of those guys would never have seen action and then they come back to Australia and and that's how I felt that night I felt that something was missing and you know, the conversation from the front of the police car was, was banal, to put it mildly.
0: Did and they not have much to say to each no, other? No, no, no,
2: they, they were different. Um, the driver had been a very, very successful and senior and amazing police officer in Scotland. And he was just the, the calmest, coolest guy. I wished he was my buddy. Yeah. But I was stuck with, the, you know, the man with the bad haircut. DeVito, yeah. And we um, we started to head back to... Um, to north sydney and we're heading over the harbour bridge and and it was it, you know it was it was wet it was it was sprinkling there was a fog a mist no no traffic on the on on the bridge one in the morning maybe 1 30 heading back to north sydney now we'd been aware our shift started at 11 p.m when i came on that night at 10 30 because i was just to get there early I always used to read the faxes for all the previous things that had been happening, particularly pertaining to our area. In other words, from the Harbour Bridge to Hornsby and out to Eastwood and the beaches, that was the area that I was interested in. And there'd been this um, panel van. White panel van, A right? white panel van, with yeah. three occupants. They had, by the time I came on shift at 11, they had already committed around about, 20 break-and-enters, some of them involving violence. They are in a white panel van, Holden panel van. So I was aware, and you'd be hearing chatter on the radio. Chatter being other th- things happening in relation to this, and this, this white panel van just kept coming up for the entire shift up until 1.30. And I'm thinking to myself, because that was the only exciting thing that I had to listen to
0: bits of updates about a potential yeah. you know i thing going on just out of reach
2: yes just out of reach i'm thinking then, yeah. the whole of sydney's sort of everyone's sort of it, this is a really big event but this is something that every police officer that night would, would have dreamt to have got involved in something to do with these scumbags yeah so
0: this is this is where the story turns It was at this point, while crossing the harbour bridge in increasingly dense rain, that a white panel van overtook their car. And as it moved past them, John locked eyes with the driver. For a moment in time, the driver looked back, his eyes suddenly wide and staring right at John. He then very, very slowly turned his head back towards the road, almost as if he thought police officers' vision was, much like a Tyrannosaurus Rex's, based off movement. In an instant, the van burst forward and began to peel away. Len looked at Dunn, who swiftly flipped on the siren, slammed his foot into the accelerator. John was pushed back against the seat. The chase had begun. Now, Dad, at this point, I'm assuming that you know how to drive. And what was it like being in the back of a car, not being the one doing the chasing? What was it like kind of being a backseat car chaser?
2: Was that weird? Um, <clears throat> I was sitting in the middle. I'd, I'd actually been sitting behind. Mm-hmm. Um, either probably sitting behind the driver... And then I remember sliding across into the middle of the bench seat. Better view? Yeah, really good view, but no seatbelt. <laughs> so I actually had to disengage my seatbelt to move into the centre. Mm. And I held on to the headrests, um, One, my left hand holding on to the observer, being the senior man, my buddy, and one hand on behind the driver's headrest. Mm-hmm. Yep. And I'm looking through, I had a clear view of the entire, it was like being in a picture theater. And the windscreen was the picture screen. And it was like watching a movie. Now, because I was semi-delirious, I'd never done night shift in my life. So I was pretty well off my face. Um, You know, delirious, really tired. And then the adrenaline starts to pump. Yeah. And then I'm just watching a real, real car chase but I'm not watching a car chase at the cinema. I'm in the car chase. We are the only police car and we are pursuing the panel van. Fortunately, the driver, um, Mr Dunn, Constable Dunn, he was a really, really good driver. And uh, back in the 1980s, everyone, um, and I can say this, Um, honestly, from the heart that the sole objective in a pursuit in the 1980s they never ever called a chase off the drivers the police drivers' sole objective was to push the vehicle you were following, pursuing beyond their capabilities so either A they'd stop, which I've never seen happen you know, just pull over casually occasionally they'd pull over and, and all piss off, but every single chase that I've ever been in, this, the objective was to push the driver beyond their limitations, and generally speaking, they'd crash. And then this, the, you, you'd have various consequences. And I know that some of the listeners are thinking, thank God that's all changed. Um, we could do a whole series of podcasts on the, the morality, the ethics of car chases there's a lot to it bearing in mind that everything's happening really quickly and the driver of the police car that i was in he was a very good driver it's pissing down but it really 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 started to to absolutely bucket down and fortuitously the panel van with its three occupants they didn't know the area and they their objective was I mean, they could have just kept going up the up the freeway, but they decided to hook a left, a really tight left, and they, re- or we realized that they were they were lost, and that was our advantage because we or the driver knew the area intimately, and that chase went for about probably maybe seven minutes. Is it in, a long time for a car chase? By yeah, him? that's a long time, bearing in mind uh, that. You know, you basically lose the brakes. They overheat. Right. Uh, And it's an automatic car. So, um, the driver was using the gear stick. uh, Like, he'd pull it into second to slow Mm -hmm. the car down. Right. And we ended up in Waverton. And it was a sort of a borderline suburb where we were actually going to be heading out of our, our area. But... The driver, my buddy, was calling the chase, and what happens in a chase is that VKG, they basically put an announcement over. They amalgamate numerous channels so that police from many many areas can be listening in, and no one is to talk about anything except what's going down. Yeah, and what happens is that police from all all, all like. Let me think about this. There were numerous police from er- other areas that these guys had already done lots of break and enters in and they all wanted a piece of the action because they're thinking, hang on a sec, this guy's broken into 10 houses, these guys um, assaulted a few people and everyone wanted a bit of the action. So it it, it brings p- police in from a vastly large geographical area. So we had, by the time... how. how do you want me to sort of keep talking, Paul? In terms of, is there a point you want me to stop and say? Well,
0: it? I mean, it is interesting because this chapter does end on a very specific point. Okay, well, but if, we're, you, if you read the chapter, you know, well, no, what I was going to say is that I do find it interesting that we've we've actually looped back to the dispatch because it would have been people in dispatch, uh, you know, sitting at those dispatch machines, rerouting all of the calls and yes. making sure that police on their radios were only hearing what your car was broadcasting, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, it
2: was it was just unbelievably exciting and. I remember just following this car, and uh, my driver—the not my driver—the driver. The driver um, I'm just saying the driver because I, I can't afford to slip into names. <laughs> but he he was literally tailgating, and we, we were doing some really nasty speeds. I reckon we were at least at times doing over 100 kilometres an hour.
0: That's bananas. In back
2: streets, in in the in the wet, and it was yeah. really really dangerous. And um, but he he drove masterfully. And at a certain point during the pursuit as though it was all pre- predetermined, sure enough, the panel van started to lose control, started fishtailing.
0: John was in the lead car in a high-speed pursuit. He couldn't believe it. He caught sight of his face in the rearview again and was struck by how stupidly excited he looked. His mouth was slightly agape, like he'd just been given a particularly unexpected and extravagant birthday cake. He saw his face suddenly young again, lit by the candles dancing before him. He pursed his lips and took a deep breath. "'We're chasing baddies,' he thought to himself, unprofessionally. His reverie was interrupted when the two cars took a corner, and before them, an unlit park and a swarm of incoming police cars appeared. Easily 30 of them, from all different districts, were pulling up on all sides of this enormous park from myriad directions. And distracted as they were by the sudden blare of lights and noise, the driver of the van apparently stopped paying attention for a moment, which was all it took for the van to hit the curb at high speed, buckling the axle and sending it hurtling skyward. Dunn applied the brakes, John was flung forward, all air in his lungs expelled from his body into the cabin of the car. The candles and the cake they adorned detonated. So whenever I do that reading, it I sometimes read that at you know, festivals or events or whatever. Uh, and that's literally a cliffhanger because the next chapter begins with the car landing. But cha- that's chapter six folks so we'll that's save it
2: Save it. We're gonna,
0: to, we're gonna have to save it so next next uh next what day is this podcast coming out next tuesday you'll be able to listen to loose units origins and we'll be dealing with chapter six the park if Fantastic. you haven't already got your copy i mean dad this must be weird for people who haven't read the book
2: right right oh, look here, not not undoable just a very different experience oh god you know I, I i really look forward to reading a chapter each week oh that's nice i love it
0: that's nice Well, everyone, it's been a really fun, really strange episode of Loose Units Origins. We all miss you terribly. And thank you so much for all your amazing questions. I've got a whole bunch of, I've got a raft of incredible questions, Dad, from our listeners about all kinds of stuff. We've had people asking about the funeral industry, about the fire brigade, about police. So I'm going to give you basically a speed round version of Q&A this Friday. Okay.
2: Fantastic. Look forward to it.
0: All right. Awesome. Everyone stay safe and we'll see you later on this week for Loose Units Loose Ends.